Welcome to Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Straub and Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss the important health-related questions to provide you with information that you can trust will be faithful to the dignity of the human person as understood by the Catholic Church. Today our main guest will be Dr. Paul Carson, an infectious disease specialist at North Dakota State University in Fargo, where he's a professor in their public health program. We're going to discuss antibiotics, their appropriate and inappropriate use, and some things that you may not have known about them in this modern age. There are some concerns with them that we might even be running out of them. But first, let's look at some recent medical news items. In late November of 2017, the head of the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, is trying to close the so-called EpiPen loophole. Do you ever prescribe EpiPens, Andrew? You know, I run into this a whole lot, especially for folks who have been taking EpiPens for various allergies in the past, and now they're getting a new sticker shock with this issue that's come up. And, and what is an EpiPen, and what do you prescribe them for? Yeah, an EpiPen is an injectable form of medication of epinephrine that we use for severe allergies. Many people have mild allergies that don't require this, but if someone were to go into anaphylactic shock, especially if they needed treatment at the emergency room, a lot of times we'll prescribe these medications that they can inject on their own, usually into their leg muscle, to stop an allergic reaction, an anaphylactic reaction, before it gets really bad. And in that type of reaction, I think there's so much swelling that sometimes even the airway can swell shut and patients can die. Yeah, they, it can be very serious, especially if someone's had a reaction like that in the past. We really encourage patients to keep an EpiPen on them at all times. I have a daughter who does that because of uh, tree nut allergies. And the EpiPen 2-pack in 2009 cost $100. In 2016, the price rose to $600 because there was only one maker of it, and those companies that tried to become generic makers of it were foiled by certain FDA rules. And yep. those rules were that you not only had to have the exact same drug, but the same delivery method. And it had to be exactly the same, not comparable, but exactly the same. And so the company, Myelin, that makes the EpiPen is now making its own generic, but it's still $300. Fortunately, there is another company that makes something called the AdrenaClick, and it can be used for the same purpose, but it cannot be substituted generically for the EpiPen because it's not exactly the same thing. But if a physician writes epinephrine autoinjector instead of EpiPen, then either one of those two things can be used. So it's a potential way to save a, a lot of money, and in fact, it's advertised on one place that one of the major drugstores will sell it to you for $10 with a $100 rebate that they offer at the counter if that's still available. But what the FDA is doing now is saying that uh, you don't have to have exactly the same delivery device. It just has to get it in there safely, and you have to prove it. This, this is one of those examples that we hear about more and more, unfortunately, where a lot of the times the patients are feeling like they're being gouged on really essential life-saving medication. Yes. And for, for people who are following the backstory, I mean, the folks in the upper levels of this company even had very close ties to relatives and politics, and there was a, a senator from Illinois who was seeking re-election. Yes. Uh, and so there's the, the web runs deep, but I, I think especially in advocating for patients, this is something that we have to have more affordable so that people can get the care they need. Absolutely agreed. The other news item I found was the British Medical Journal in November of 2017 has a meta-analysis of meta-analyses. <laughs> That's a study of groups of studies of groups of studies on coffee and its relationship to health. And I suspect you are both coffee drinkers. <laughs> I, I've been known to have a cup of coffee. From time to time. I will say I will have a cup of coffee from time to time. <laughs> I never have. Uh, but my wife and seven children all drink coffee. So this is in homage to them. Well, these researchers in the United Kingdom reviewed 201 meta-analyses of coffee related to 67 unique health outcomes. And more often than not, coffee was associated with health benefit or health harm. What do you think? Oh, it's got to be for the benefit, right? It was for the benefit. In <laughs> fact, they s it seems that the optimum health benefit appears to be three to four cups of coffee per day, which is roughly 100 milligrams per cup or three to 400 milligrams. 
I didn't realize that but coffee includes over 1,000 bioactive compounds. They're antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, anti-scar formation, anti-cancer, anti-everything. Bad for you, I guess. And it even depends on the type of bean, whether it's Arabica or Robusta. I didn't know there was such a thing. <laughs> uh, the degree of roasting, the grind setting, the brew type, specific bacteria in your gut, etc. Now, all-cause mortality rate decreased 17% for age, sex, and health match controls if you drink three to four cups of coffee versus none. So what's, what's the take-home message here? Do you think, think we should drink more coffee? I well, we're, we're not to that point yet, okay? We got more to go through, but that's a great question to save for a couple minutes. I think we can summarize and just say coffee, good. <laughs> well, coffee. and that makes me wonder if, if Pope Clement the uh, Eighth knew this in the 1500s when he baptized coffee. Because this was something that was from the Middle East. It was from really Islamic yes, territories. Yes, it was. And he said, you know what? This stuff is too good to pass up. We're going to make this holy. And the biggest benefit is not in cardiovascular mortality, which has decreased 19%. It's actually in liver disease. The risk of liver cancer in those who drink coffee is half half of what it is in those who don't. And the risk of chronic liver disease is reduced two-thirds. Now, is it because they're substituting coffee for alcohol? <laughs> that is one possibility. But even overall, there's an 18% lower rate of cancer. The only harm to drinking three to four cups of coffee was in Chris's patient group. Uh-oh. Some of the information on miscarriage you're probably referencing and high caffeine doses, right? Yes, 31% increase in uh, low birth weight, 12 to 22% increase in uh, preterm birth, and then 46% increase in miscarriage. Yeah, and for the moms and potential moms listening, it's an important point. I mean, we usually counsel mild caffeine consumption is probably okay. And some of those individual studies that looked at miscarriage rates, it was for women that were consuming very large amounts. And among other things, they have rather significant sleep disruption from so much caffeine. And the kind of person that consumes huge amounts of caffeine often does other unhealthy things as well. So fear not, coffee's still good if you're pregnant, but you need to exercise some self-control and probably limit yourself to the equivalent of one to three cups a day. And, and how much caffeine is in a drink? Well, where coffee has about 100 milligrams, uh, tea has about 75 milligrams for an equivalent amount, but one can of cola, Diet Coke that I drink, about 40 milligrams. Uh, so it's a lot more caffeine in that coffee, but I think you're right. Coffee is probably good, but the researchers said don't start drinking it just for health benefits, but if you are, that's wonderful. And you know, Tom, it's probably worth pointing out, listeners need to do a little math. We're not talking about the very popular energy drinks. No. Um, and no. if they start looking at the math and the amount of caffeine or caffeine equivalents in those, it's not what we're talking about. And those can be very detrimental. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we are discussing the day's news and now moving into Andrew's segment with his preventive medicine tip of the day. I've got another gem today, and this one goes out to our friends uh, who are struggling with smoking and hopefully struggling to quit smoking. This is a recommendation from the USPSTF, our favorite governmental organization <laughs> that makes recommendations about preventative care, uh, recommending that people be screened for lung cancer if they have a specific history of smoking. What history would that be? You know, we're really, we're trying to pick out folks who unfortunately have smoked a long time, at least 30 years, wow. 30 pack years, and have not been successful in quitting or have not been quit for 15 years. What's a pack year, Andrew? That's a good question. So a pack of cigarettes, uh, we had to go through all this stuff in med school so we could calculate it just right. A pack of cigarettes got 20 cigarettes in it. And if you smoke a pack a day every day for a whole year, that's one pack year. So if someone smokes two packs a day, in six months, that will be one pack year. Yes, it would. So you could get that 30 pack years in 15 years if you're a two-pack-a-day smoker. It depends how dedicated you are to the bad <laughs> habit, but you could get it relatively quickly. And so our goal is to pick off people who are either current smokers or recently quit and try and screen them to look for lung cancer before it becomes really a, a place that we can't help them anymore. And let me guess, you might have three tips that you want to leave I do. Listeners. I do. I, you know, they say men can only think about three things at a time. So these are my three things about smoking. <laughs> <laughs> my number one thing is that lung cancer, unfortunately, is the leading cause of cancer deaths out of all types of cancer. Is that for men only or men and women? 
men and women, and actually women, the mortality is a bit worse than for men. Wow. We, we know in America, on average, there's about 220,000 new cases of cancer each year and 150,000 deaths from lung cancer, specifically alone. Wow. Yeah, so it's, it's very serious for the folks that do get it. And depending on when the cancer is diagnosed, there's about an 18% survival for five years. So That's low if among you catch cancers. It, it's, very, it's very bad. You know, folks who have advanced cancer, it's even worse than that. If you catch it early with these screening programs, it can be over 60% for five years. What's your second tip? My second tip is that this screening is done with a CAT scan, and this is low radiation. Usually we worry about radiation in CAT scans. This is about a third of the normal dose of a CAT scan, and it only takes about 25 seconds to run the test. So this is different than a regular full-blown CAT scan? Correct. The, the imaging quality is not quite as high because they aren't looking so specifically at all the little areas. It's more of a screening test, so we're looking, we're kind of getting the gestalt. If they see something, they can look back closer later. So what does this see with such little radiation? Well, the main thing that we're looking for is a lung mass or okay. some stigmata of cancer in the lungs with movement of the airways or different findings on the imaging. Okay. And your third and ultimate tip. My, my third tip is that an x-ray is not good enough. One of the things I, I get ah. asked a lot from patients is, you know, radiation is bad. We all know that. Could I just get an x-ray? Wouldn't that be as good? And the answer is uh, unequivocally no. They've done plenty of studies and shown that lung cancer screening with x-ray is really not that helpful. So the CAT scan is really the way you want to go. Is this light version of a CT scan equivalent in radiation to a chest x-ray? Do you know? It's still much elevated from a chest x-ray, but it's much less than the regular CAT scan. And it's something that they found is safe to do given the risk, especially in this population. For you or I, we wouldn't need this extra radiation, but for someone who's at very high risk of lung cancer, the risk is much less to get the CAT scan. So if you have a 30-pack year history or more, your insurance will cover this CT scan light? It will every year. And then it will- Every year? Yes, that's correct. And they'll stop covering it after you've been quit for 15 years when your risk of cancer is back to similar with the rest of the population. Ah, So if you can stay quit for 15 years, you are not at much higher risk. It's not worth doing the screening for it. Very good point. So already in the show today, we've confirmed, enjoy your coffee, stop smoking. If I had a nickel for everybody who said, well, I didn't quit smoking, but I quit the coffee. My message is keep the coffee, quit the cigarettes. You know, it's been some time since I did the math, but if we looked closely to smoke a pack a day, it's probably three or $4,000 a year. That would pay someone's health care insurance deductible. I think that's something to take home and think about. And to end this first segment of the show, we have our medical trivia question of the day to ponder until the end of the show. Today's question is, if you suffer from cinephrys, is it likely to shorten your lifespan? If you suffer from cinephrys, that's S-Y-N-O-P-H-R-Y-S. We'll be right back after the break with more Dr. Doctor coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we are interviewing Dr. Paul Carson. Dr. Carson comes to us from North Dakota, where he's an infectious disease specialist, a professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at North Dakota State University, and a professor in the Department of Public Health. Welcome, Dr. Carson. Thank you. Very pleased to be with you all tonight. He is an expert in a number of things. In fact, he works as a sideline, as part of his job, for the North Dakota Department of Health, where he's the state content expert on antimicrobial stewardship. You know, I ask my patients when I operate what they do for a job, and not a single one of them has ever said, I am in charge of antimicrobial stewardship. (laughs) Dr. Carson, you are especially interested in antibiotics. Before we get to the stewardship part, tell us what you mean for our audience by the term antibiotic. Sure. So uh, it's probably easiest to think about the different things that cause infections and cause problems for us as humans. And so there's a variety of things that can cause disease in us, and that includes bacteria, fungi, viruses, uh, and parasites, to name a few. And as a broad category, we have a number of different drugs or uh, agents that can treat those things. We call that broad category antimicrobials. When we talk about antibiotics, those are specific drugs to treat bacterial infections, which are the things that we probably deal most commonly with 
with our physicians. How would our lives be different today in the 21st century if we did not have antibiotics? Uh, they'd be radically different. So if, if you look back, and not that far back, at the turn of the last century, the average life expectancy of people living in the United States was around 50 to 60 years old. Uh, now we're pushing life expectancy uh, of up to almost 80 years old uh, for most people in the United States. And that's for a variety of reasons. We've had a number of different things that have improved our health, but antibiotics have played a major role in that. When you think about some of the infections that we deal with on a regular basis that uh, people have seen over the decades, take, for example, pneumonia. The most common cause of bacterial pneumonia is due to something called strep pneumoniae or pneumococcus. That gets into the bloodstream about 20% of the time. When that happened in the pre-antibiotic era, that was almost universally fatal, about 90% mortality from that. Wow. Uh, it's very rare to die of that nowadays. It would be less than 10% typically with that kind of an, an infection. Similarly, if you look at something like endocarditis, that's infection on a heart valve, that was universally fatal, uh, essentially 100% mortality. It's rare to die of that now unless it presents very, very late. And I could go on and on with infection after infection, meningitis, abscesses, intra-abdominal infections, and so on. Much different now because of the advent of antibiotics. So do you think because they've been so effective, people are starting to take them for granted? I definitely think that's true. And I think physicians have some culpability here in that we've had these very effective drugs that have appeared for the most part very safe, and we'll hopefully get into some of the questions about that a little bit later in the segment. But because they've been so effective and because uh, at first blush they've appeared quite safe, uh, we've given them out very freely, very liberally, very uh, injudiciously. And it's actually, if you look at some of the statistics on this, it's remarkable. About five out of every six Americans will receive a course of antibiotics every year. We give almost 200 million prescriptions of antibiotics each year. And wow. in fact, if you look, yeah, that is incredible. If you look at the average American child, they'll receive somewhere between 10 to 20 courses of antibiotics before they turn the age of 18. So we give these out very liberally, uh, very frequently. Uh, there, there's actually been some studies that have shown that it's not at all atypical for the average two-year-old to have spent almost three months of those first two years of their life on an antibiotic. Holy mackerel. That's, that's, a, that's a lot of medication. I mean, well, I guess even to back up just a bit, we, we use the term in medicine antibiotics kind of as a catch-all. What are some of the most commonly prescribed antibiotics that our listeners would be familiar with? Sure. So probably if I could kind of maybe name sort of the big oh, four categories and maybe some of the specific ones, the penicillins are a broad category that have a number of different antibiotics in them. People have heard of penicillin. Probably the most common one your listeners would uh, be familiar with is amoxicillin. The IV form of that is ampicillin. And then there's a little souped-up version of that that adds a little uh, drug onto it to kind of make it more effective. Augmentin or amoxicillin clavulanate, more commonly known as augmentin. A lot of people have had their children on that over the years. And then a closely related group of antibiotics are called the cephalosporins. So people may have heard of things like Keflex and Omnicef and Ceftin and Duracef. There's a variety of different oral ones and IV ones that we use there and, and a large array of choices. And then there's another category called the macrolides, and uh, people will often be familiar with something uh, they may commonly hear of called a Z-Pak, azithromycin or Zithromax. Very, very commonly used in um, respiratory tract infections. And another, another big category of antibiotics that's used a lot are something called the quinolones. This is drugs like Cipro or Ciprofloxacin or Levofloxacin or Levoquin are extremely commonly used. And we have many others beyond that as well, but those would be some of the common categories and types of antibiotics that a lot of people would have been exposed to. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we are interviewing Dr. Paul Carson, infectious disease specialist from North Dakota State University. And now we're talking about the overuse of antibiotics. Paul, I know there's a website you like, I like, and I think patients should start to like. It's called Choosing Wisely, and it's 
choosingwisely.org. There's even a Choosing Wisely app that just came out that I've downloaded to my smartphone. And to put this together, the American Board of Internal Medicine asked a number of specialty groups to come up with five to ten things that physicians and patients maybe shouldn't do as much as we do. And one of those things that they say is avoid prescribing antibiotics for upper respiratory infections. Why is that? Yeah, so I, I, I'm glad you're plugging that website. I didn't know there was an app for it, so that's really uh, <laughs> great. I learned something here tonight. Choosing Wisely was a partnership with the American Board of Internal Medicine, and they also partnered with Consumer Reports to, to help promote the judicious use of antibiotics. So one of the big targets there is respiratory tract infections. And if you look at the number one reason for outpatient visits, particularly in adults to clinics, it's respiratory tract infections. And when you look at those, when you break those down, the, the vast majority of those are going to be due to viruses or viral infections, even some of the ones that we don't commonly think of. And viruses won't respond at all to antibiotics, yet antibiotics are given very, very frequently. So we give out about 150 million antibiotic prescriptions or, or maybe even upwards to 200 million per year. It's estimated that about a third of that, almost 50 million of those prescriptions are either completely unnecessary or inappropriate. Now, and that's mainly because of giving, these, giving them for viral infections, like the common cold, like acute bronchitis, even a significant portion of ear infections, throat infections, and sinus infections are going to be due to viruses. Why, why, Dr. Carson, why would people give, why would physicians prescribe these antibiotics for something that's not going to respond to them? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great question. So I think part of that is that it's not easy sometimes to tell the difference clinically, whether that sore throat or that sinus infection is due to a virus versus a possible bacterial infection. Um, and so uh, I think doctors sort of have felt over the years that it's just easiest to, in their minds, play it safe and give the antibiotic. Now, we've learned a lot more that that isn't actually playing it safe, that that has definite adverse consequences for us. I think another reason is that there's a perception on a lot of doctors' parts that, that the patients expect this and that when the patient comes in, they want to leave with something in hand. And often they'll come in and ask for an antibiotic by name. And uh, there's a concern that if they leave with the doctor telling them, no, I don't think you need one, and I'm not going to prescribe that because I don't think it's warranted at this time, that that patient will be unhappy, you know, give a poor review of the doctor, maybe go somewhere else or leave their practice. And oftentimes to try and explain all the ins and outs of whether or not you need an antibiotic in that short, maybe 15-minute visit is a challenge. And so often the path of least resistance for both the patient and the doctor is just to give an antibiotic. We, we, we have a lot of patients that, that I get to see that come in and uh, they say, you know, every year I, I get a sinus infection this time and I feel it coming on. I just want to, quote, you know, nip it in the bud. And I, I get to have some of these conversations with patients, but what, what would you tell patients in regard to that kind of prophylactically taking antibiotics? Yeah, I, I think it's a very bad idea. They're actually much more likely doing themselves potential harm or their community and their family potential harm by promoting resistant bacteria in and on them. So I, I think it's, if we've got maybe just a second here, it's worth talking about some of these common respiratory tract infections. So let's start with the one you just talked about, sinusitis. At least half of sinus infections, and, and probably more, are going to be purely due to a virus. Even when we think of those classic sinus infection type symptoms, pain above my tooth. I bend over and it hurts. I'm blowing out, you know, green and yellow kind of goobers out of one side of my nose. Those things do not predict bacteria. They're just as likely to be the findings that one would see with a virus. The only thing that helps us sort of predict that it's more likely to be a bacterial infection is that it is when it lasts longer. So professional societies that have developed guidelines around this say don't give an antibiotic unless those symptoms have lasted more than 10 days wow. or you have severe symptoms like a high fever, severe pain, or you started to get better and now you're getting a lot worse again. And that 10-day cutoff is especially useful because uh, it, what invariably happens is they come in and they want to nip it in the bud or they say, oh, I know, you know how this goes, and they get the antibiotic and then they start to feel a bit better at day 7, 8, or 9, and they think it's the antibiotic. But the, the thing is is that most viral infections will start to resolve around 8, 9, 10 days, sometimes even a, a bit longer. 
and so we, we put that cutoff at about 10 days to say, look, that'll help us filter out the ones that really do need an antibiotic or, or not. And I'll, I'll mention one other that's a really commonly abused one is bronchitis. So people who don't have chronic lung disease, who don't have emphysema or, or chronic smoking-related uh, lung problems or uh, asthma, but otherwise healthy, and they get a cough. They get a cold, and then they get a cough, and they're coughing and coughing, and they now they're coughing up, again, these sort of yellow-green you know, phlegm and so on, and they think, well, this is a bacteria. I need an antibiotic. There's study after study after study showing that antibiotics do nothing for that. And that, that's a surprise to some people, but they do nothing over a placebo. And it, it's just tincture of time because almost all of those are, ba- are viral infections that are going to resolve on their own. Now, Dr. Carson, we're going to cut to a quick break here, but I just wanted to clarify one thing that you mentioned. Did you, did you say that the green um, mucus does not mean bacteria? That is correct. Okay, so that could be viral or bacteria. Our patients are going to find that hard to believe, but good to know otherwise. We'll be right back with the third segment of Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio after a quick break. This is Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where today your hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Andrew Mullally, are interviewing Dr. Paul Carson, infectious disease specialist at North Dakota State University. In the last segment, Dr. Carson mentioned that sometimes using antibiotics when they are unnecessary promotes resistance. Dr. Carson, what does it mean to promote resistance among antibiotics? Sure. Let me just clarify that last statement a little bit. Actually, any antibiotic use can promote resistance, whether it's appropriate or inappropriate. So that, that's one of the, the negatives or downsides of giving an antibiotic is that you can promote the carriage of resistant bacteria in or on your body. And so we want to minimize that as much as possible by not giving antibiotics when they're not necessary. So when you, when you look at our bodies, we carry about tenfold more bacterial cells than we have of our own cells. We are about 10 to the 14th bacteria, the space that occupies you. Wait a minute. Does that mean that we are each a minority? (laughs) (laughs) Our our human cells are a minority in the space that is you. Uh, Bacteria. uh, Can we use that with the government? I'm sorry. I'm just (laughs) trying to find a little bit of humor here. Go ahead, Paul. (laughs) So when we give an antibiotic, appropriately or inappropriately, that will um, hopefully target the infection we're trying to treat, but it inadvertently attacks all those uh, bacteria, normal bacteria that live in and on us. And um, some of those bacteria then will survive to become resistant to that antibiotic. And some of those bacteria can be later harmful or come back in the form of an infection to, to someone. And in fact, the Centers for Disease Control has outlined a list of these antibiotic resistance threats in a report they released in 2013. And some of your listeners may have heard of some of these. So, for example, MRSA or MRSA, methicillin-resistant staph infection. About a third of us will carry staph on our skin at any given time, but increasingly people are starting to carry a resistant form of that staph for the common antibiotics that we like to use to treat it, making it much more challenging to treat. Now, Paul, why methicillin? I mean, hardly anybody ever uses that. Why was that picked to name this yeah, it's a, it's a sort of a historical fact that methicillin is uh, a prototype of a category of antibiotics that we, we uh, had developed in the um, 70s and 80s that, became, that, that overcame penicillin resistance, which had become ubiquitous in staff. So this category of drugs were, were altered, and methicillin was one of those. We have many of them now. And what you're um, saying about carriage, one of the common places to carry it is in your nares, in your nostrils, in your nose. And so in my specialty where I'm operating on patients' faces every day, if I'm operating on the lip or nose, I have them put an antibiotic, mupiracin, in their nostrils because it has been proven to reduce the rate of staph infection, especially in flaps and grafts after surgery. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I, I didn't know that that was typically done. You, you, you must do ENT surgery. I'm a most surgeon, so I do facial cancer surgery ah, and reconstruction. Gotcha, gotcha. Sure. And um, uh, interestingly, you may be interested to know that now mupiracin resistance is starting to emerge to staff, uh, sadly. Um, but uh, that's correct. It, it resides in our nares and on, and on other parts of our skin. And this category of antibiotics that represents a broad range of antibiotics we like to use to treat it now that staph has evolved resistance to, and about 40% of staph infections out there, both from the community and in the hospital, are now resistant to these 
groups of antibiotics represented by methicillin uh, that we would otherwise like to use. Well, Dr. Carson, I mean, everything we everything's so scientific now. We're coming out with new discoveries every day to improve the health of, of our patients. Is resistance really a big deal? Can't we just come up with new and better antibiotics like methicillin? Yeah. You know, so that was kind of the answer uh, from the pharmaceutical industry and from a lot of uh, physicians in, in the past. That no longer is flying. So when you look at the antibiotic pipeline, you know, in the 80s and 90s, uh, that was the answer. Pharmaceutical companies were cranking out new drugs to try and overcome, you know, resistance. And we were just maybe one step barely ahead of the bacteria. Uh, antibiotics are no longer an area that pharmaceutical companies are very interested in investing in for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. One is um, you typically give the antibiotic only for 7, 10, 14 days. Um, they're much more interested in developing a drug that somebody takes for the rest of their life, like a lipid drug or a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a heart disease drug. And um, secondly, you have people like me saying, if it's a good antibiotic, don't use it, save it, spare it, hold out for uh, you know, when we really need it. And so, for example, in 1985, there was about 16 new antibiotics that were developed by pharmaceutical companies. In 2012, there were two. Um, and and that, that pipeline has stayed relatively low. It's just not an area of active investment. And so public health authorities and professional societies have said we've got to do a lot better job of preserving the antibiotics that we have. Well, that really highlights the importance of not overusing the ones that are so powerful, but trying to to pick a better choice for for common infections. There was something encouraging I just read in the JAMA Internal Medicine of uh, November 27th, 2017. It said that, you know, patients are less satisfied with physicians when they turn down their request to be referred to a specialist to order a test or to prescribe a pain medication. Interestingly, patients were not upset with their physicians if an antibiotic was refused. Does this mean that this Choosing Wisely campaign is starting to work at least in this small area? You know, I I hope that's what it means. I I saw that article as well, and I was very encouraged by that. I do a lot of teaching on antimicrobial stewardship, antibiotic stewardship to physicians, and I've brought that up now, that um, I think that, uh, you know, patients and the general population are hearing more and more about this. They are uh, reading about it, even in, you know, Good Housekeeping and Red Book and People Magazine, uh, um, and they and they know people who have been affected by resistance uh, infections, such as MRSA and others. Um, and I think people are getting that and are more likely to accept when a physician says, you know, I don't think it's a good idea to give an antibiotic in this case. Let's kind of keep an eye on things a bit longer. So I, I hope you're right that that message is getting out, and and I think our doctors should take uh, encouragement from that. If you are just joining us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where we are interviewing Dr. Paul Carson about antibiotics and antibiotic stewardship. So, Dr. Carson, what would be the takeaway message for patients when maybe they expect an antibiotic, they they feel like they need one for their infection, and the the physician says, you know, you might not really need one? What would be the best way to proceed there? I I think they should, uh, you know, pay heed to their doctor's advice there, ask what they can do to try and manage their symptoms, and uh, and there often are a number of things that can be done to help a lot of, for example, these respiratory tract infections to manage them symptomatically, um, but I think they should uh, pay heed because it, it actually may be very much to their benefit, their individual or personal benefit, not just the public health issues. I'd even take that a step further, that when their doctor suggests an antibiotic, I think it's a fair question to ask you know, do you really think I need it? Do you think it would be okay to keep an eye on this for a little bit longer and, uh, and maybe report back to you on my symptoms and, and ask whether that antibiotic is truly necessary? When I teach about stewardship, I teach about an antibiotic timeout. And the first step of that antibiotic timeout is to say, do I, do I really need this antibiotic? How likely is this to be a bacterial infection? And even if it is, can we pick up on this? Are we safe to kind of watch this for a couple of days? Sometimes we're not. Sometimes you really do need to be on one. Sometimes it's not safe to sit that out. But I, I would take often, I would encourage your listeners to take it even a step further and ask about, 
doc, do you really think I need this? And, and uh, you know, I'm, I've heard about this resistance problems. I've heard about other issues. Um, what do you think about kind of watching a little bit more? Paul, I have a question from my realm of reality. I'm operating on about uh, 70 patients a week, mostly on their face. And inevitably, some of them come up with culture positive infections. But I've been reading that even if a culture is positive, it might not mean that there is an infection that needs an antibiotic. Is that true? Yeah, that, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. That's a great question. Um, often a very confusing thing for both patients and, and doctors. So a culture does not mean infection. A culture just means the presence of bacteria. And I can swab your arm, I can swab your nose, I can swab your throat, I can swab the table in front of you and we will grow <laughs> bacteria. That doesn't mean it's infected. Even sometimes when it's sort of scary sounding bacteria, that doesn't mean it's infected. We look for symptoms and signs that that bacteria has invaded beyond where it's supposed to, beyond the natural barriers to our inner body. So do we have fever? Do we have pus? Do we have redness and inflammation? Do we have swelling and tenderness? There's these sort of classic Latin phrases, tumor, calor, rubor, dolor, you know, swelling, redness, pain, heat. You sound um, like a medical student instructor. <laughs> right, exactly. So we look for those signs that the bacteria are doing more than just sort of living on the surface. We, we don't need to care about bacteria living on the surface. In fact, we shouldn't culture those surfaces unless we see those signs of active invasion and inflammation. You know, Dr. Carson, that makes me think of something that we see a lot in family medicine with urine specimens. A lot of times okay. patients can have kind of equivocal symptoms or just don't feel well and they request having their urine checked. But sometimes they, they may grow out bacteria that's not really causing an infection. Isn't that right? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, that's a major target area for our nursing home patients and for our elderly patients. So we tend to think that, the, that urine is a sterile body fluid, but it actually isn't. Hmm. About 50% of elderly women will carry bacteria in their bladder normally. Healthy woman, no problems, just bacteria inadvertently there. And almost 30% of elderly men, the same thing. And so we, actually Canada, uh, launched a campaign about not treating these problems called asymptomatic bacteria, which which basically means bacteria in the urine without symptoms. And they have a little slogan saying, symptom-free pee, let it be. And, um, that's clever. Yeah. And so there's, it's really very rare that we need to give an antibiotic for that. In fact, numerous studies have shown when you treat that, <coughs> that you don't have symptoms referable to the urinary tract, but you treat anyway, you're more likely to cause problems, adverse effects, side effects, and you do no benefit. So that's a good point. That's I'm glad a you brought it up. great thing to tell our listeners. Paul, we have about a minute left. What are the most important points about antibiotic use and resistance you'd like to leave with our listeners? So I I don't want listeners to go away thinking that they should never get an antibiotic or they should resist those because sometimes they save lives and they can be very, very important. But especially in that outpatient setting, in that respiratory tract infection setting, I would strongly encourage listeners to question, do I need that antibiotic? Because whenever we take an antibiotic, appropriately or inappropriately, we are pushing that bacteria, that those thousands, actually millions and millions of bacteria that live in and on us to become more and more resistant to antibiotics, making it more likely that we may become infected than in the future with a resistant infection or pass that on to our loved ones around us. So stewardship, Um, it's a... Catholic concept, stewardship of creation, and antibiotics are part of that. Dr. Carson, thank you so much for being part of our show. We'll be right back after the break with more Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, a trustworthy source of medical information for Catholics. And we are back with the final quarter of this episode of Dr. Doctor. We're your hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally and Dr. Chris Drard. So today, we now have the answer to that trivia question you've been cogitating about for the last half hour. And the question is, if you suffer from cinephrys, is it likely to shorten your lifespan? Andrew? Chris? 
it depends who you ask. I, I think. think it's possible that it could shorten your lifespan. It, it's possible it could, but it would be a behavioral thing, somebody else's behavior, not your own. For cinephris <laughs> comes from the Greek words meaning literally eyebrows together. Yes, cinephris is the fun medical name for unibrow or monobrow. Now, in my childhood, the most famous monobrow belonged to the friend and roommate of the lover of rubber duckies, Bert, roommate of Ernie, lover of rubber duckies. Bert had one of the greatest monobrows of all time. But even now today in uh, NBA basketball, there is Anthony Davis with a monobrow, and he is banking on it saying, fear the brow. Did you know? that the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans and Arabian culture associates the fusion of eyebrows as a sign of beauty. you got to wear it with pride. That, I mean, look at Bert. He owned it. <laughs> he totally owned it. Uh, in fact, some of the ancient Greeks or Roman women would paint between their eyebrows to make it look like it came together. Somehow that did not migrate to the West. Cinephris is something you might see in your patients, but uh, interestingly, it's not a sign of any one particular syndrome, although it can be present in certain syndromes. In fact, one that I take care of sometimes called basal cell nevus syndrome, patients who get hundreds of basal cell skin cancers all over. There's an interesting biblical reference to cinephris, we think, in Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 1, where it says, You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. And some people thought baldness on the foreheads referred to cutting between the eyebrows. Apparently the pagans in that region of the world did that as a sign of reverence for the dead, treating the dead as gods. Therefore the Jews were forbidden to do it. Now how common do you think cinephris is, Andrew? Well, it it probably depends where you live, it doesn't it? I don't know. There have not been many studies done. In fact, I could only find one on the east coast of the Arabian Peninsula, the country of Oman. And in Oman, a study of 927 subjects, these were people entering a doctor's waiting room consecutively, found that 12% of patients had cinephris, and none of them had any medical reason for having it. It was probably just in their genes. I, I didn't think anybody else read that journal besides me. <laughs> they probably don't, Andrew. So the take-home message is if you have a monobrow, it's not going to uh, shorten your lifespan, and be like Bert and own the brow. Well, now we're going to move into a book and movie recommendation from Andrew. Yes, we have a recommendation for folks who are looking to get a little bit more information, medical information, but also entertainment, in the story of Ben Carson uh, named Gifted Hands. Originally a book, most recently a movie in 2009 with Cuba Gooding Jr. I had a chance to watch this recently with my wife, and we really enjoyed it. And I read the book shortly after it came out in 1990, and I was just amazed by... His deep faith, Ben Carson's not a Catholic, uh, but he had a deep faith in God, realizing that he had ordered the universe and that he had given him his hands. In fact, that's why he realized this is, that his hands were gifts. It, it was a gift received. If it's a gift, somebody gave it. He knew God gave it to him and made the most of it. You know, even IMBD, the movie rating website, gave it a 7.8 out of 10, which is a pretty good review. And in that movie... One of the things that really touched me was the example of his mother, Ben Carson's mother. Oh, my goodness. She was a cleaning lady for some type of professor. And there's this one scene where she is in his two-story library. It's an open room, but there's like two stories of bookshelves full. And do you remember? She asked him, have you read any of these books? And do you remember what he said? I I think he said, yeah, I read all of them. Yeah. Yeah. And she was dumbfounded. (laughs) So he taught her to read. Well, and, you know, I think even, didn't she also ask where where his television set was and it was behind a stack of books? (laughs) Yes. And that was one of the things that as as she was learning, because she was illiterate as a cleaning lady. Yes. But she, in, in the movie, it was depicted that she would 
you know, correct homework for Ben Carson and yes. his brother and more or less just mark it up and say, ah, try again, you know, even though she, she really couldn't give any, any kind of feedback as an Ill- illiterate person. Right. She didn't want her sons to know. And she let her sons watch a half hour of TV a day. They turned out pretty good, Do you right? know what TV they watched? What was that? It was the College Bowl Quiz Show. Ooh. Now, see, that's something. I was homeschooled growing up, and that's something that would have fit in in our house. Yes, uh, I, I would have loved that. Uh, but it does depict also that when he was the top student in his junior high, he was ridiculed for being a black student who got the top student, which was very sad. And so he had to fight against those stereotypes all the way up. In fact, when he becomes an intern in neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins, the nurses think he's an orderly when he shows up for his first day. You know, I think in in the world we live in, especially coming out of Detroit, which has really fallen on hard times in the last 50 years, seeing a story like Ben Carson's and the success he's been able to have because of his faith, because of his mother, despite having bad situations, you know, a bad hand dealt to him. It's really an inspiration. I think a lot of our viewers would appreciate that. Well, not only a bad hand. Of course, his father left when he was young. uh, But he and his brother uh, both got professional degrees. His brother's an engineer. And his mother eventually earned a Ph.D. Mm. That's impressive. Wow, that's that's some hard work there. That that's not just genes; it's also hard work. And as if it, as if his medical career and all his accomplishments were not enough, we fast forward a few years, and now he's the secretary of HUD, the only secretary of HUD who's ever lived in federally funded housing. Yes. Um, so it's it's remarkable, particularly for those I think who find themselves on hard times, to be able to look up and see. This is what could happen. It actually is possible. Yes, and of course, the most famous surgical case uh, in the movie, which is very well portrayed, uh, is he is the first person to successfully separate Siamese twins that shared part of their brain. I, I really liked that part of the movie because one of the things, especially going through medical training, that I, I always found fascinating was in the operating room, after the procedures begun, especially for some of these long procedures, the surgeons usually listen to music. And sometimes yes. it helps helps the team relax, even helps them maintain focus. And I always, as I was going through my different rotations, I always found it telling the music that people would play. <laughs> what and did you hear, Andrew? We, I've heard a lot of stuff, and it depends on, <laughs> on the rotation. <laughs> and uh, some of the stuff I said, I can't imagine this is calming your hands. It's giving me heartburn, you know. But uh, Ben Carson, I thought that was really telling because he likes classical music while he operates. Yes. And in fact, I've used that uh, since I'm operating all day long. I have a, a playlist with over 600 different pieces of music on it, and not a day goes by that a patient doesn't thank me for the music chosen. I have a number of monks and nuns singing Gregorian chant. I have a lot of classical music. I have Celtic women and, and many others. And yes, it, it calms the surgeon and the nurses too, because when it stops, the nurses notice. It's like, doctor, where's the music? Well, I can top that, Tom. When we do infant circumcisions in our office, I put the monks on my cell phone right next to the baby. And the baby gets this blissful smile on his face. <laughs> you know, I like that. But in all seriousness, Chris, when I got to round with you as a student, it was I noticed a palpable difference in the team in the operating room when, you know, praise and worship and Christian music came on. It gave it gave a sense of mission to the surgery that, you know, Led Zeppelin or Guns N' Roses didn't do for other <laughs> OB guys I got to round with. Music is the, it's the salve that soothes the savage beast. It's actually the savage breast. Oh. The heart is the, you know, the basis of who we are in, you know, old literature. So it's actually soothe the savage breast, even though many men are savage beasts <laughs> who need to be soothed. Another key surgical case in that movie and in the book is the first ever hemispherectomy. Are you familiar with that surgery? You know, it's it's one of them that you don't hear about as often, but I believe is still one of the treatment options for epilepsy. Intractable epilepsy and seizures, that's right. Right. So where there's one half of the brain has this little 
part in it that's putting out this electrical current that the brain doesn't need, and it it multiplies on itself so much that it's like a, a storm of lightning throughout the brain. And so the bla- brain is so plastic, can remold itself so well that if you take it out, even in an adolescent, one half of the brain will fulfill all the mission of the entire brain. But it, I'm sure it was incredibly frightening when he first did it. You think that one half the body's not going to work. Well, you think, too, that some of these procedures that are so standard now, these must have been done for hundreds of years. But in reality, Ben Carson was doing this only 30 years ago, and this was, you know, pioneering, really, the field of neurosurgery. You know, I feel so much better hearing that, Tom, because many of my teachers coming through school would say, if you just had half a brain. <laughs> and so now I, now I realize I wasn't handicapped as I thought. <laughs> no, you weren't. There's another poignant scene in the movie that I think is very uplifting from a virtue viewpoint, and that is one day... All of his professors are out of the hospital in John Hopkins across town at another conference. So he was the senior resident in the building. And in came this person with this horrible head trauma that unless he had surgery, he would probably die, even if they transported him to another hospital, which is exactly what his superiors told him to do if this happened. But what did he do? He he had to do what it took. You know, sometimes when... When you're presented with those situations, you have to do what's necessary to help the patient. So he operated, even though his his professors told him not to. And so when the head of the department came back and heard about what happened, he called Ben Carson into his office, and he lays into him, now what did I tell you to do? What did I tell you not to do? Do you know what could have happened if, you know, the surgery had gone bad? It didn't go bad. And Ben Carson goes, yes, they could have shut our department. They could have penalized us. We could have not had residents anymore. And then Dr. Udverheid said to him, and so knowing all the consequences, you did the right thing anyway. And you just see Ben Carson's body relax. It's like, yes, he'd considered the alternative, but he did the right thing. It was so good to see that his training physician wanted to do the right thing, wasn't concerned about what other people would think or say, but was truly concerned about the right thing for the patient. So I think that you would enjoy this movie with your kids. You probably want to watch it with kids that are at least like 12 or 13 years old because of some of the operating room scenes. And I believe that it's readily available on streaming options like Netflix most of the time. Well, this brings us to an end of another edition of Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And remember, the healthcare decisions you make today could have eternal consequences. Choose wisely, choose Catholic.